you know what we should do? We should instead use this explanation as the intro. No. <laughs> or are we going too far deep into the rabbit hole? We're going far too deep into the rabbit hole. Or we could just we could have like like a portion of our Which is a shame because the rabbit hole thing would be a perfect segue into this movie. Uh, okay, additionally, if we want to go even deeper into the rabbit hole, we could have a portion of our conversation followed by me suggesting that we should have that conversation, followed by you suggesting the explanation, followed by this straight into... So welcome to episode 7 of Stuck in the Middle with You, a podcast where two guys take a look at a critically divisive film and see on what side of the consensus they fall on. My name is Derek Gane, and currently shopping for clothing on the other line. It's <laughs> In, in, in sunny Miami, Florida, is my friend and fellow podcaster Juan Barkeen. Say hi, Juan. Hey. This was a weird one this week. Yes, it was. Almost as weird as the fact that I'm paying $6 for two tiny short shorts. No plugs. Short shorts. <laughs> um, Let's, let, yes. us not, let us not talk about booty shorts. we got a movie to talk about. All right, fair enough. But there is some booty in this movie, non-sexualized uh, children booty. Oh, my God, don't. <laughs> oh, man. Um, that is not the way I wanted to introduce this film. <laughs> that is not the way I wanted to introduce this film either. I wanted to introduce this film by immediately addressing the fact that it has an abundance of breastfeeding. Our film today, our super exciting, super breastfeeding film God. today, is Louis Mal's Black Moon. That is correct. 1975... Yeah. Uh, and anointed by the Criterion Collection as being worthy of inclusion into the hallowed halls. A lot of films are worthy of inclusion. They have over like 700 at this point. Yeah, out of like the hundreds of thousands of films made over the course of history. They don't always make perfect decisions. Yeah, well, that's another discussion for another time. Fair enough. So what's this movie about, Juan? What is Black Moon by Louis Mal about? It's an apocalyptic Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, well, it's a post-apocalyptic Alice in Wonderland. The apocalypse has already happened because we're in the middle of World War Three. This is not a war between nations. No, it's a war between genders. Yes, it is. But I was just reading the letterboxed tagline. Anyway, yes, it is a war between gender. It's basically like the cis wars, as Derek mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, that's the way I put it because, I, yeah. The yeah, cis wars. Like, yeah, more or less. One of the first scenes is like you just have all of these women being rounded up and stood up in a line. This one male soldier walks up to one of them, kisses her, moves back, and then they are all slaughtered by gunshot. Yeah, that's a really good image. And incidentally, I think it's kind of fascinating that we watched this movie right after seeing Jolene for the podcast because that image is more potent and vibrant than anything that movie had to say about victimhood. Or systematic mm-hmm. oppression. Mm-hmm. But this, the uh, the framing device of the gender war, the cis wars, only takes up about uh, maybe 10 minutes. More or less. Film. I would say maybe 15 tops. It's really there for flavor. So you have Catherine Harrison as our main character, Lily, who is driving a really sweet orange car through the post-apocalyptic wasteland. I know, right? It's like the most beautiful thing in the world, and I wish I had one. After witnessing the uh, slaughter of the uh, maybe half dozen women that are there, well, she gets found out. She's disguised as a man with a with a hat and a coat. And she gets found out and she drives off. Uh, she uh, survives gunfire and she takes refuge into the European woods. But wait, what's within these woods, you ask? There's what's... a farm 
There's lots of wild shit in this. Yeah, lots of wild shit. Lots of, like, animals that just happen to be there. Yeah, wild in both the literal and figurative sense. Because, yeah, there are animals. This movie makes a big deal of, like, the relationship between the natural order and humans. There's a lot of bugs. There's a lot of birds. There's a lot of farm animals. Whenever she's laying on the grass, there's there's this one scene where she's just resting after running away from everything. And... There's just an abundance of close-ups on the way these insects interact with, like, the world around her. And it's so, it's such a weird little, like, series of images. It's not that weird when you consider that Louis Mal was already known and won an Oscar for the documentaries, or a documentary that he made with Jacques Cousteau. That is very true. So it's not completely out there to think, ah, well, you know, Louis Mal is shooting nature. True. So he's working kind of in his own wheelhouse. And then uh, a gaggle of naked children run down a hill with a giant <laughs> hog. Yeah. I don't uh, – I mean I've stated on this po- – <laughs> I've stated on this uh. podcast – I've stated on this podcast before how weird I am with naked children in movies. As am I. I don't – I'm not particularly comfortable with it, especially in this case where like – Compared to last time, where we had an, a very, like, a mature woman playing a young woman whose breasts were constantly exposed, we have this, this movie around, where, like, real everyone is. is actually underage. Uh, yeah, here, here's the thing. Uh, Louis Mal in this movie often displays a gaggle of naked children, but I feel like that's sort of a, not a commentary, but that's, like, tied directly to, like, hippieism communalism going back to the land man because you know what other movie had naked babies in it easy rider that's a weird comparison to make but i feel like it is this a is a good comparison to make it, i'm not gonna lie to you but i do think that both easy rider and this movie black moon are two movies that tried to grapple with the counterculture and with sort of changing mores i mean they're it's, very embedded in their their period. in their respective cultures yes but i think this one does it a lot more allegorically whereas easy rider was it's a road movie. I mean, it makes sense. It's done through the lens of youth culture. It makes sense that Easy Rider is done this way. And it makes sense that Black Moon is done this way because it's kind of like an out there allegorical coming of age, uh, political uh, feminist, uh, 17 million things at once, which is great about a lot of movies from the 1970s is that they're super messy, but they have a ton of ideas. They don't always connect. And... It's I true. love I love that particular kind of movie. I was telling Juan before we went live that I think this is the most 1970s movie I've seen since I've seen uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Which is a pretty fair... It's a pretty 70s movie. Yeah. So it's a very that, 70s movie that wishes it was... Not wishes it was because it does kind of reach at like a certain level, but um, it wishes it was a little more coherent in its surrealism, if that makes any sense. Pauline Kael wrote in a review of this that Louis Mal was a sane man trying to make a crazy man's movie. Which I don't Honestly, think... I mean, like, I wouldn't agree with that entirely. I don't agree I with do that entirely either. understand where she's coming from. I think that part of surrealism, the true blue essence of surrealism, is uh, there's the subconscious is sort of put at a premium. Mal's approach here is more thought out. Like everything in this movie is – nothing feels out of place even if it's completely weird. I mean – well, yeah, no, that's fair. It doesn't ever feel out of place, but it doesn't exactly – some like, of it felt a little derivative of works of other surrealist filmmakers. Well, and yeah, at one point, like, 
I was looking at the credits for the film, and I saw that one of the writers was Luis Buñuel's daughter-in-law, which the moment I read that, I just said to myself, oh, that makes perfect sense. Well, she's credited with additional dialogue, because this movie's not really dialogue heavy. There's a lot of grunts. There's a lot of onomatopoeias. This it's actually a lot- one of the things I really appreciated about the movie. I love what it does with, like, language on a general level. I think it's so interesting because it blends... English, it has, um, there's English, there's French, there's uh, the Tristan and Sold singing piece, there's like, just like weird mumbling jumble. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of like gobbledygook because... Yeah, there's like animal noises, and even like one of my favorite things the is animals just like... talk sometimes. Yeah, there's that one moment where she just like, where um, male Lily, I guess is what I'm going to refer to them as, Played is by... just touching her... Yeah, and that's how they're communicating. And, like, my other favorite scene, just, like, within the spectrum of, like, how things communicate with each other, is uh, when she's she's just walking through the garden, and then she just starts stomping on these flowers. And my subtitles <laughs> at one point said, ethereal wailing. Yeah, it just sounds <laughs> like someone, like, someone uh, yelling through an old synthesizer. Yeah. That's oh, no, 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 stop, stop, no. I'm not doing that's, it really well, but I mean that's more or less what it is. Let's let's. Like. I'd like to point out real quick that our uh, that uh, male Lily is played by Warhol superstar Joe D'Alessandro. Yep. So she get uh, so uh, Lily gets to the farmhouse. There is an elderly woman there, played by uh, Therese Gies, famous uh, star of German stage and screen. Worked with Bertolt Brecht, and uh, she just she spends a lot of the movie just kind of babbling and being bedridden. More or less. <laughs> And communicating to a giant an unknown rat. presence. No, giant no, no, rat. no, no. Not just the giant rat, but also the the, the radio, the two-way radio. Yeah, I like that we're just smoothing over the giant rat that talks. <laughs> I mean, listen, like, we can get to the talking animal soon. Okay. <laughs> so let me ask you this question, Juan. Mm-hmm. What does Therese Gies' character represent? Listen. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not saying you have an answer. I'm not even saying I have the answer. I just want to know what you think. Um, honestly, I, I'm not even going to attempt to make a, a logical assumption on what she represents, because I, I just don't know. I'm going to take a crack at it then. Okay, go for it. I think Therese Gisa represents first wave feminism. <laughs> Here's why. Go on, me, tell me, me more. Let me have please. a crack at this. Let me have a crack at this. Uh, she's in bed. She's uh, She's bedridden. Uh, in comes um, Catherine Harrison, uh-huh. and she comes in. She's making fun of the fact that she's blonde, blue-eyed. Uh, she's got no, she, she literally says, oh, she's got no bosom, right? Just taking pot shots at her. And I think that in a way uh, the Lily character represents second-wave feminism. You know, it's women's lib. This was made in 1975. Mm-hmm. So I think this represent. I think she represents in her own kind of weird allegorical Louis Mal filtered away second wave feminism, like the women's love movement of the sixties and seventies. At the end of the movie, she ends up taking the mantle. She ends up. She she takes. She literally sleeps in the same bed. She takes position where she once was. This is the new. This is the new standard. This is the way. This is how we move forward. I don't think that it's a coincidence that brother Lily and sister Lily leave the movie in fisticuffs and go basically join the war they go out into the shit basically they leave the estate they leave the estate which is basically a utopian ideal for uh second wave feminism communal living uh oneness with nature etc etc 
So that's what I think. That's my core of the film. That's what I think the movie is about. In the general sense, it's about societal change regarding gender stuff in the 1970s. I mean, it certainly makes sense considering, again, the first scene and the scene that followed that a little later when she finally reaches somewhere in the middle of the forest and she sees all of these women essentially, like, beating a man to death. Do we ever see uh, that it's a man? No, not necessarily, but it's assumed, I feel. Like, it's the the movie clearly is coded that long hair is women, as in, like, when the movie, like, has started. Yeah. Like, all the dude soldiers have the close-cropped hair, and all the women they shoot have long hair. True. So, if the dude had short hair, it was probably coded dude. So, but yes, keep going. But I feel like that, that makes sense, especially with where the film is going in this sort of post-apocalyptic gender war universe. I mean, I feel like the scenes between Lily and Old Woman are sort of padded with surrealist imagery tossed into it for the sake of just kind of being a little stranger than it necessarily needed to be. But no, I, I, I would agree with your interpretation of the movie. Or well, at least think, of their relationship. I think the sort of surrealist elements are, are, are a means to an end. Like we had sort of hinted at earlier, uh, this movie is a bit more thought out than what we assume a surrealist film would be. Because it has a plot, it has characters, it has, it has like basic continuity. So I don't, like, I don't feel like that's necessarily true. I don't think it's uh, as well thought out as you're, you're giving it credit for compared to some other surrealist films. Because I feel like surrealist films are often enough very well thought out, actually. I think the imagery is more thought out, but I think the way that all the imagery interlocks in this film is more thought out than people give it credit for. Okay, that's fair. I, I think, I'll, I'll disagree with you, but it's, it's, it's a fair point. I think to get to the core of this movie, there's a lot more digging and unpacking that you have to do in terms of cultural reference, like what a black moon is. That's not a random title. Or... Yeah what a unicorn represents in mythology or uh, or why use why use wagner in this it's a very sort of culturally dense film historically dense and i can't even begin to unpack it it's kind of like this is going to be a really weird comparison to make but this is kind of like an old school pc adventure game where unless you, <laughs> where unless you are like really in tune with the person who created it you're going to have a hell of a hard time getting through it but if you can follow the leaps of logic from A to B to Z to Q to four, you're good. That's fair. And, and I was on board. I mean, I could, I'm not saying that I got everything, but I think I got enough to appreciate the film. I appreciate it. Like, unless um, I had, like the only way I could probably do more is like to get a degree in classics. Yeah. But I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm not either. But um, I do think one of the one of the biggest themes running through, which ties directly into the sort of Alice in Wonderland comparison point, is the loss of innocence or tainted innocence or just I don't know, like it's a fucked up coming of age narrative to a yes. certain extent. Oh no, it definitely uh, is. It's it's yeah. it's basically a girl in this case going from she's in the middle of a literal culture war and she goes from the beginning being someone who's like on the fringes of it who's just trying to get through it uh like a passive observer type into an active participant and in kind of a if and if you follow my leap of logic from what i explained earlier into a vital part of that same conflict yeah it's sort of like realizing what your stature is in the world and what that means in terms of 
associations in terms of potential dangers in terms of in terms of where your social standing is how you sort of uh, own that and combat that mm-hmm. this movie was shot by sven nykvist who's best known for his work with Ingmar bergman which incidentally gives this movie a kind of twisted uh, bergman-ness it really does but it looks like it, it looks like this movie was shot just constantly on cloudy days it might as well have been, <laughs> but it's a, it's a very it's kind it's of a dark fitting. movie. It's fitting. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely it's fitting. fitting for the not just like the entire atmosphere of the film isn't exactly supposed to be light, but um a lot of the the sort like the surrealist imagery is very reflective of like that journey of loss of innocence. Even like the children frolicking, Lily always feels kind of like at a distance from like these like tiny children just like running around and like i guess they're to a certain extent representative of what was once there what Complete was once and like happy innocence. and free come to like, a total innocence there's this one scene where they just start like attacking her and just sort of overtaking her and she's struggling so desperately against this and like the film doesn't attempt to make any subtle like <laughs> it it doesn't try to be subtle whatsoever about it's the not, fact that it's, it's about the loss of innocence it's not subtle but the movie itself is elliptical about it so i'm willing to just forgive bluntness if there's plenty of holes that are already pre-poked that's fair even in some of the dialogue, when she sees the unicorn and she finally, well, after long after she sees the unicorn for the first time, but she finally gets to interact with it, she starts speaking to it and she says, I don't mean to be rude, but you're not very graceful. In my books, unicorns are slim and white. And the unicorn just kind of like goes like, uh, 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 the most beautiful things in the world are the most useless. It's so different from what we usually get from like the unicorn symbolism. Like you look at something like, say, like legend. Like you legend, have, yeah. Exactly. You have this throwbacks. You have this perfect, perfect figure that's like untouchable, unattainable, like beautiful, white, majestic. And then here you just have like this fat horse. Basically a mule with a, yeah. with, with a horn. <laughs> exactly. And it just sits in the corner. And, like, does next to nothing. It carries itself about, like, a surly worker. Like a surly, like a surly clerk. It's like, you come into my house and tell me that I look like shit. And you're giving me shit because I tell you you're rude about it. Well, fuck you. Fuck you and the horse you rode in on. I'm going to leave for two centuries. Good fucking luck. <laughs> well, see, unicorns in particular are one of the easier symbols to decode in the film. Because, yeah. according to Wikipedia... In the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, unicorns were commonly described as an extremely wild woodland creature, a symbol of purity and grace, which could only be captured by a virgin. Hooray. So <laughs> here we have our unicorn, who's kind of a mutt unicorn. And was there ever any innocence to begin with? Does it really matter? Is the concept of innocence just uh, a fabrication? Just a construct? Maybe. This movie doesn't tell us bald-faced because it doesn't tell us anything bald-faced. I mean, we, I'm actually we curious. Just kind, about, we just kind of like, have to take our guesses. Yeah, I'm actually curious about how, like, the. I mean, it can only be caught by a virgin. I'm curious about how that plays in. Of like, well, this young is... woman was technically able to like to come up to it, to talk with it, to do things with it, and yet every other time when she's in the presence of this old woman, she can only see it from a distance, and the old woman seems very like hell bent on getting her not to interact with. Well, you the know what unicorn? this movie is as well. It's a, it's a, not just a coming of age tale. It's a oh shit, I am a sexual being 
I have to grapple with this kind of that story. It absolutely is. The snake in particular snake. crawling up her leg at one point. Again, not a super subtle image, but given the fact that this movie is kind of elliptical, I'm willing to let it slide. Yeah. I'm only against it or more sort of annoyed by it when it spells it out for me in capital letters like a certain other film we covered two weeks ago. Listen, we're not going to talk about <laughs> Jolene today. That was last week. I mean, two weeks ago. We're done with that. Yep. I do want to talk about another comparison that I kind of, like, that popped up in my head that um, sort of relates to the whole, I guess, Alice in Wonderland, sort of like the magical realism of it all. Lay it on. Which, like, it first came to me in this one scene where she's just running through the forest from, like, the right of the screen to the left. And it reminded me so, so, so distinctly of an animated style that is very, very much Miyazaki-like. Yeah, and... you can, you can draw, yeah, like me and Juan were talking about this off mic, and yeah, you could pretty much draw a pretty straight line between Black Moon and Princess Mononoke. And to some extent, I think Spirited Away as well. Just the general, like, I, like, I guess the young woman's journey, a lot of, like, gender discussion, uh, the sort of relationship between nature and humanity the war there's a lot of things that you could like draw a very very straight line between the two of them just saying it wouldn't surprise me if Hayao Miyazaki caught this movie in the 70s and went hmm all right i'm pretty positive he did and i mean uh, like just this just the focus of this like young woman with such like what could be a vivid imagination or what could actually be happening around her in this She's- very like she Weird either has magical realism. Yeah, she either has a really overactive imagination or she's fucking Snow White. Which is exactly what you could say about Spirited Away to a certain extent. This is kind of a fucked up Snow White story, isn't it? Except a little bit. Except you've got the uh, the wicked queen living upstairs and giving you shit for your hair. <laughs> and the, the wicked and, queen that you become. <gasps> wicked Oh my god, shit. And the, se- <laughs> and the seven dwarves are actually just two very androgynous looking, possibly incestuous people. Yeah, more or less. And there's a gaggle of naked children being deployed every now and again. Yeah. And they also sing Tristan and Isolde when yeah. they have clothes on. There's one sequence in particular, which I think <laughs> is mine and Juan's favorite sequence in the film, where all the children sort of put on clothes. Joe D'Alessandro... And uh, and sister Lily like make each other up and they play they play the love duet from Tristan and his old yeah and it's really intense it's really good filmmaking it's really striking it really is they're indoors but there's like wind and leaves blowing everywhere and all the kids have clothes and then disappear and everything is like dubbed so it's super fakey looking but it makes it more intense in a really weird way. Okay, the dubbing, I, I want to talk about that, like, to a certain extent, just, like, trailing back on the way, like, dialogue and the constant shifting of communication within the film's universe. Yeah. Like, some of it was, like, you could tell she was just speaking English, and her mouth was moving perfectly along with the English, and some of it was just English words were coming out, but they would have purposely a completely other dialogue being spoken at the time of filming because there's two there's two different there's two different versions of this film there's the english version and there's the french version and the actress was german so 
<laughs> I'm not sure what the shooting strip looked like, but... I mean, I, I assume they did it purposely just for the sake of, like, making either version completely and totally, like, jarring. Well, they certainly to succeeded. to to the surrealist beats, obviously. But yeah, they did succeed. <laughs> we got this far without talking about the underage nudity. <laughs> I mean, we. I feel like we mentioned it in passing. One of the one of the most uncomfortable things of the film is the fact that Catherine Harrison, uh, pretty much just like bears her chest at the end of the movie and starts yeah. prepping herself for the sake of breastfeeding a unicorn. Well, she already breastfeeded the old lady, which was slightly yes, more she disturbing. Did. <laughs> no, frankly, both of them are very disturbing in my book. Oh man, this is <laughs> this is my comeuppance for giving Jessica Chastain shit last time. Yep. Uh, you get a movie with like an abundance. See, it's still not tastefully shot or anything. It's kind of tastefully shot, but it's not like sexual. The thing is, the whole film is like sort of tastefully shot, but like yeah, I mean, you've got Louis Mal behind the camera, and you got Sven Nykvist lensing, so exactly. it's bound to it's bound to look sort of good on purpose. But at least I at least tell myself that it wasn't male gazy. It's true. It wasn't. There wasn't it. There wasn't any time where the camera was like, boy, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> which would have made me very uncomfortable and would have been highly appropriate. Can we? Can we save you doing that as a sound effect that I can just press whenever I so goddamn please? Wait, me going, boy, wah, 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 wah. Yes. Uh, no. Although someone out there probably will. One final thing about this movie is that it's sexually charged without being explicit. Yeah. Even, even with uh, the chest bearing and, and everything, it's, it's sexually charged. This is, after all, a, woman's, uh, a young woman's sexual discovery. But it's not like explicit. It's not like gross. It's not it's inappropriate. Metaphors. It's metaphors. You know, that's, that'll save your ass. It's true, honestly. Like... <laughs> <laughs> that's like the worst sales pitch ever hi yeah. i'm Derek Godin for metaphors do you need to say something and not really say it how about a oh. metaphor oh my god get out I... <laughs> i'm done with you today if you're not interested oh. in metaphors i got similes okay no. no this is like that one time where i hated you um you mean which is every time, time. Yeah. yeah all right so <laughs> fresh or rotten on louis mal's black moon I'll give it a fresh. I think it's a very interesting watch that I could actually potentially do with a rewatch sometime in the near future. Not in the near future, rather, in a very long time when I'm in the mood to watch something sort of mind-boggling. I'm a big fan of just messy allegorical movies that have more ideas than they do sense or coherence. And this was kind of a coherent version of one of those movies. So I was on board with it. It still has its kind of slow parts. Not everything gels, but I admire the ambition. So, no, I love sort of kitchen sink head movies from the 1970s. This is definitely one of them, so I'm going to give it a fresh. So we agree. Another agreement. We always agree on your movies, except, like, (laughs) most of the time they're fresh, but one time it was rotten. Yeah. Well, you know, they can't all be winners. Yeah, I guess. Some, you um, have to learn to live with defeat, man. Yeah, you have to learn. Do. You have to learn to live with losing. Sometimes yeah, you lose, loser. Whatever. <laughs> Shut up. I hate you. I don't care it's if we a- don't agree on my movies. They're more fun. I 
I don't know about that. It depends. You, you, you pick your movies. Like I pick my movies because, oh, what could we see that's different or weird or whatever? You pick your movies to make me fucking squirm. Not always. Next, next weeks, I'm not. Uh, or next two weeks, I'm not. Um, let's keep. Let's keep that on the download for now. Right now, we're gonna do recommendations. Yes. So Juan, what are you recommending? My recommendation <laughs> for this week is another film by Louis Mal, which yeah. is one of his very, 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 very early films, and the first one of his films. I think it's his earliest. <laughs> yes, actually, I think it is. You're right. Um, it's his is first it? movie. Is it's it his hel- first? I think it's his debut movie. It's a hell of a debut movie. Now I need to check. Uh, it was actually the first film of his that I saw because I thought it would be something that I would love. It's, uh, I mean, it's it's a black and white film. It is his first feature-length fiction film starring Jean Moreau. It has a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful score by Miles Davis, which is basically the reason that I wanted to watch it in the first place because sad I mean, jazz. sad jazz is essentially it's a core part of the one aesthetic. It really is. <laughs> the film is Elevator to the Gallows, which is also conveniently on the Criterion Collection. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah, it is. It's a great movie. I'm pretty sure Derek and I saw that together. Didn't we Didn't we watch that in like one of my old streams? Yeah, that was during one of the uh, old-timey live streamings. That was a group screening. Back in the day. Back in th- th- Those were good times. Yeah, they were. Shouts out to everyone who was, out, who was listening to this that was there when we were doing those. Long, long time ago. Anyway, uh, that's my recommendation. How about you? You know what? I was going to go with my dinner with Andre, but I'm not. Uh huh. I am going to go with a movie that is also in the Criterion Collection, but I was not directed by Louis Mal, but it was directed by a dude called Paul Morrissey. And those of you who know that name also know that he was the guy who directed all those Andy Warhol movies. Mm hmm. And this movie in particular, amongst many others, also stars uh, Brother Lily, Joe D'Alessandro. But it also stars one of my favorite character actors, Udo Kier. The movie in question is Flesh for Frankenstein. Yup. If you're, if you're in tune to this particular kind of sick joke... Because it is, this movie is kind of a sick joke. It really is, honestly. I remember, like, I saw it on the, in the theater one year for Halloween. It's really fun, though. It is. It is a, really fun. It's kind of a charmingly sloppy. It's trashy. Tra- it's really trashy in that Warholian way. But Udo Kier gives it his all. He's an old pro. Joe D'Alessandro is appropriately disaffected in the film. And it's pretty gnarly. It's pretty, pretty graphic, too, in it parts. Is. In parts. in parts. But uh, I haven't seen Blood for Dracula yet. I'm going to rectify that soon. But uh, Flesh for Frankenstein. Check that shit out. Yes, you absolutely should. So, Juan, uh, this, next week is your pick. What do you got for me? What do you got for us? You mean in two weeks. It's my That's right. pick. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a fun one that we can just have like a kind of mindless discussion about. Um, All right. Because I feel like we've had these very, very deep, deep episodes lately. Uh, <laughs> I, I try to keep them under 40 minutes. I know. But, I mean, uh, they've been – there's been a lot of heavy things to talk about between the last two episodes. Yeah, rape, so sexual f- abuse. Exactly. Uh, uh, sexual war, coming of age, war, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, the roles of women in film. 
shitting yourself in Mexico. Yeah. Well, that that one was like long, long ago. That, see, that was like th- those were the fun days. Those were those were before computer. We've, yeah. Th- then then we matured, and now we're going into our. This was our this was our quarter life crisis. What do we got? What kind of mindless shit are we gonna do to stave off the fact that we're about to turn thirty? <laughs> we are going to watch a, a Roland Emmerich film. Aha. Uh-huh, okay. Um. Because why not? It's Roland Emmerich. He's if you want, if you want a, trashy, awesome spectacle, he's your man. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. The only film of his that has a fifty, while many of them are in the forties and sixty. My choice is the Channing Tatum and <laughs> Jamie Foxx starring White House, White House Down. Down. Shit. All right. <laughs> okay. Ah oh, man. Yeah, that, that one of the two uh, raid on the White House movies that came out in 2013, and by all accounts, the better one. Or so they say. We will see. So Juan and I uh, run a website, uh, Dim the House Lights, which you can find at dimthehouselights.com. That's where we uh, put most of our long-form film criticism. Uh, we also have three other writers on staff, Michelle Arf, Chris Mello, and Ross Burks. I also write uh, occasionally for Sound on Sight. Juan also writes occasionally for the Miami New Times and Yam Magazine. We're both on Twitter. I'm at Derek underscore G. And Juan is at W-O-A-H. It's Juanito altogether. Uh, We're also both on Letterboxd. I'm at Derek underscore G there as well. And Juan is also there at Woe It's Juanito. If you're interested in listening to this podcast sold episodes, this is number seven. We've got six other ones that you should check out. Uh, You can find us on iTunes. Just search for Stuck in the Middle with You podcast. You're bound to find us. There's not a ton of podcasts that share our name. And uh, while you're there, leave us a review. Give us a rating. Give us some feedback. We can't make the show better if we don't know what we're doing wrong. Okay. If you'd like I to got, find our okay. podcast's website, you can feel free to visit sitmwypodcast.tumblr.com. Yeah. Well, the website has links to everything we've already mentioned. And... As the ep- direct links to the episodes if you're not into the whole iTunes thing. Uh, there's a link to an RSS feed. There's a link to the raw files. You know, we like to give the people options. So I think that covers everything. That's uh, yeah, that, it that does. Was, that was Black Moon. That's the episode. And see you in two weeks. Hooray.